at some point, what I realized is one of the greatest acts of giving that you can undertake is to make the other givers in your life feel appreciated. And the only way that you can do that is to go out of your way to show gratitude. And for me, that's, that's rarely in the moment. It's more often months or even years later when the person has forgotten the act or the moment has faded from their memory, but it still sticks with me. So the practice I've most enjoyed during the pandemic is finding my dormant ties, some of the people I've lost touch with, and letting them know how, you know, eight, nine years ago, they really fundamentally affected my life in a positive way. Hello, everyone. I'm Arianna Huffington, and this is What I've Learned. Today, Adam Grant tells us why he's been rethinking what's truly important during this very challenging year. For me, gratitude has always been one of our most powerful emotions. It's such a light-sounding word for something so profound. But there is a reason why it shares the same Latin root, gratis, as the word grace. Living in a state of gratitude is our gateway to grace, which is why gratitude is such a key part of our well-being. Of course, after a year like the one we've just gone through, gratitude might not be the first thing that springs to mind. But in fact, it's in times of crisis, when we're being physically and emotionally and spiritually challenged, that we most need to call on the singular power of gratitude. Gratitude works its magic by serving as an antidote to negative emotions, and it's available to all of us all the time. The only eligibility requirement is being alive. Gratitude is also a very close relative to joy, which is why, as the saying goes, it's not happy people who are grateful, it's grateful people who are happy. Our guest today is a perfect example of that. Adam Grant is one of my favorite thinkers. He's an organizational psychologist at Wharton, host of the TED podcast, Work Life, and a best-selling author whose latest book is Think Again, The Power of Knowing What You Don't Know. Here he is to share how 2020 shook up his list of core values and give us his unique take on what gratitude means to him. Something I've learned in the past year is that integrity is more important to me than I thought it was. Before last year, whenever somebody asked me what my core values were, I said, number one is generosity, number two is excellence, number three is freedom. Now integrity has moved up to that top group, definitely replacing freedom. This past year for me has elevated a value that I didn't pay enough attention to. Before, I thought integrity meant that you should practice what you preach. Now I have a different view of how to live with integrity which is that you should only preach things you already practice. It's a great way to avoid hypocrisy, and it also forces you to become the person you claim to be before you make the claim. One pleasant surprise of the year was that over Zoom, I've had the deepest exchanges I've ever had in the classroom. I realized that for my whole career, I had called on whichever hand happened to be raised. I'd been missing out on students who had compelling points to make, powerful stories to share, and tough questions to ask. My colleagues and I ended up creating hashtags in the Zoom chat window. We said, if you have a question, put in hashtag question, and then I'll call on you at a relevant moment. You can use hashtag on fire if you desperately want to get in the conversation, and I will pause even mid-sentence and the floor is yours. We also used hashtag aha. Anytime you had a eureka moment or you learned something, you could summarize that for your peers. My favorite hashtag, though, was hashtag debate. That allowed me to call on students who had dissenting opinions, 
who were willing to challenge their classmates and even me. And it allowed me to bring more diversity of thought into the classroom. And that's something I want to carry forward even when we're no longer on Zoom all the time. My new book this year is called Think Again, The Power of Knowing What You Don't Know. I started writing the book before the pandemic and before the Black Lives Matter protests were galvanized by multiple acts of police brutality. Going into this year, I thought the importance of thinking again was really about saying we want to be lifelong learners and we want to build cultures, communities, workplaces, and schools where that's the norm. I still believe that, but now I see other reasons for why rethinking is such an important skill. One thing that stood out to me is how reactive we've had to be this past year. We took for granted so many assumptions, that we could go to a workplace or eat in a restaurant, that we could hug our grandparents or our grandchildren. I wonder if we would have been more prepared if we had been more open to questioning these kinds of assumptions. When a lot of people were written off as prophets of doom or fear mongers when they said we were overdue for a global pandemic, we should have rethought our resistance to that idea. So I've come to believe that rethinking is as vital for the health and prosperity of society as it is for the growth of the people and the organizations in society. That's been a think again moment for me. And one goal I have for 2021 is to be more proactive about my rethinking as opposed to reactive. One of the silver linings of the pandemic is that it might help us appreciate things we previously took for granted. Having a job, being able to travel safely, being able to go into the office. Finally, I didn't want gratitude to become just another task on my to-do list. I decided that instead of keeping a gratitude journal, I would focus on telling people why I appreciate them. Gratitude exists to help people who have been generous feel valued. It's an important vehicle for strengthening bonds and reminding people how much they matter. My gratitude practice has not been to experience more gratitude. It's been to express more gratitude. We're going to hear more from Adam when we are back after the short break. Sleep is the foundation of every aspect of our physical and our mental well-being. That's always true. But in extraordinary times of anxiety and stress, getting the sleep we need is more important than ever. Sleep is essential to both a strong immune system and to our mental resilience, the very things we need to navigate these uncertain times. That's why we've partnered with Audible, the sponsor of this podcast, to create the Audible Sleep Collection. It's available for free for members and includes bedtime stories, meditations, and extended soundscapes from Nick Jonas, Sean, Didi, Combs, Kiki Palmer, and more to help you fall asleep, stay asleep, and wake up fully recharged and ready to take on whatever challenges the day brings you. And stay tuned for a preview of one of my favorite Audible sleep experiences at the end of this podcast. Adam, I'm so excited to be having this conversation with you because through our many years of friendship, you and I actually have engaged in many rigorous debates over things that either you or I or both of us were rethinking. So seeing your rethinking in the book was particularly meaningful for me. One of the things that you and I had many rigorous debates over was meditation. In fact, uh, we have a mutual friend who was going through a hard time and um, I was advising her to meditate. You're advising her to look at data that show that, in fact, she will come out 
of that hard time. And uh, in the process, you kept sending me studies to make me rethink. <laughs> it even led to professor of neuroscience, Richie Davidson from the University of Wisconsin, and I writing a piece to refute one of the studies you had sent me. So first of all, I love the whole premise of rethinking. Second, where are you now on rethinking meditation? <laughs> I'm so glad you asked. Well, let, let me start by saying I had a completely new perspective on this delightful debate that we've been having for years after writing Think Again, which is I've never had any problem with meditation. Many of my closest friends meditate. I think the science on it suggests that there are many possible benefits. What I've always reacted to is when I think people are preaching about it in a way that steps ahead of the science. And when someone goes into preacher mode, my natural instinct is to flip into prosecutor mode. And I think that usually it doesn't lead to a constructive conversation. Yes, and I learned a lot about that through reading the book, about how if you want to convince people, whether it's about vaccines or meditation or anything, moving into preacher or prosecutor mode is just about the worst thing you can do. And yet it seems to be our natural impulse. Yeah, and I, I think the caveat is if the audience is open-minded or receptive to your point of view, preaching is one of the best ways to inspire them, right? And if, you, if you've had some Kool-Aid that you think is delicious, telling people all the wonders of the flavor is, is one of the best ways to, to share your enthusiasm. I think the problem is that when we run into people who, who might have some opposition to our idea, that's when we, we push back harder and preach even more. And that backfires, right? Because it, it just leads them to feel judged. And it also motivates them to try to poke holes in, in all the preaching. So I was kind of relieved uh, when I got to the acknowledgments in your book that there are actually things that you are not willing to rethink. And one of them, as you told your mother, who is an English teacher, was you are not willing to rethink the Oxford comma. So is there anything else that you are not willing to rethink? And another way... To put the question is, is there something that you're absolutely sure about? And it reminds me of the question that Oprah asks everyone who does her um, Super Soul Sunday podcast. And the question is, what do you know for sure? So my question to you is, what do you know for sure other than the fact that you're not rethinking the Oxford comma? <laughs> I think... I have some core values that I'm not very open to rethinking. I don't think there's anything you could say that would lead me to abandon generosity and excellence or integrity and freedom as core principles in my life. And I guess, you know, more specifically, there's, uh, there's something that both is a key idea in the book, but also is kind of a key way of living for me, which is the scientific method. I am so confident that it's the best way to get closer to the truth that there's nothing that you could say short of running an experiment using the scientific method that would convince me otherwise. And of course, that would only prove my point because you would be demonstrating the merits of the scientific method, even to falsify it. Of course, you can learn through experience. Of course, you can learn through faith, through reflection, through interaction. But when it comes to the most rigorous testing of assumption and hypotheses, I, I can't imagine anything anyone would say that would, <laughs> that would supersede a series of randomized controlled trials with a meta-analysis to tell us what the average effects are and when they're stronger and when they're weaker or when they reverse. 
So what is interesting, even though you're kind of passionate about the scientific method and you're a data geek and you have even been described as a logic bully, a lot of the values that are so essential to you and to all your books, actually, are very spiritual values. Um, generosity, giving, empathy, compassion, humility. And by coincidence, last night, you know, I have this habit before I go to sleep to, to be reading the mystics. You know, you and I have other conversations, not just about meditation, but spirituality generally. So I was reading St. John of the Cross was a 16th century Spanish mystic. And he has written a lot about being in a state of unknowing, which I found kind of fascinating that here you have you, like the ultimate logical super professor, and St. John of the Cross, the ultimate mystic, in different ways saying the same thing. In fact, there's a beautiful stanza here. I'm sure you're not expecting me to be quoting St. John of the Cross during the podcast, but hey. Bring it on. My goal in life is to keep surprising you. <laughs> Mission accomplished, he, Ariana. He wrote, keep going. <laughs> he wrote, I entered into unknowing, yet when I saw myself there, without knowing where I was, I understood great things. Uh, I will send you more from that po beautiful poem, but in a way, what St. John of the Cross is experiencing and what you are saying is that life is a huge mystery. And if we think we got it all figured out and uh, there is nothing more to figure out, we're just missing out the magnificence of the life we're living through. I love the way you put that. And yeah, at a fundamental level, what it says to me is if you can't recognize you have something to learn, you're not going to do very much learning. And you know, I think at some level, almost everything else important in psychology, this started with the ancient Greeks, right? The, the very foundation of, of Socratic thinking was knowing that you're intelligent because you know how little you know. And I think that humility, especially intellectual humility, understanding the limits of your own understanding, it's sort of a lost virtue in Western culture. And I think using science to revive it is one of the most exciting projects I can think about right now. Yes, and I, and I think it's also exciting because, ironically, it may lead us to what's most exciting for me, which is for all of us to acknowledge a spiritual dimension. So it sounds kind of amazing that you starting from science and me starting from what actually I told Oprah and for sure, which is that there is something in us that is more magnificent than anything we may achieve in life, can can get to the same position of allowing us to acknowledge something deeper in all of us and in life. And in fact, during the pandemic year, a lot of people rediscovered kind of spiritual rituals from their childhood, prayer. Since you're a data geek, I have to give you a data point. Yes. Google searches for prayer skyrocketed and indeed doubled for every 80,000 new cases of COVID. Wow. And downloads from the Bible and the Quran broke new records. So that's kind of another way that during times of deep uncertainty and anxiety, we try to find not just comfort, but some meaning. Yes. Yeah, it's funny. Stephen Dubner and Angela Duckworth were just saying recently that 
the Bible might have been the first self-help book. Which <laughs> I, never, I never really framed it that way before, but it is full of the kind of ancient wisdom that so many of us look to contemporary gurus for. Yeah, Ariana, in some ways, this takes me back to your early question about meditation and what I've rethought. Part of my rethinking has been to say, okay, if I look at my, my knee-jerk resistance to being forced to meditate, what's really behind it was an experience I had when I think I was eight years old doing karate. Our instructor would have us meditate at the beginning of, of every karate session. And I was just bored out of my mind. And, you know, he would tell me to stop fidgeting and my mind would wander to other things and I would miss out on what the next direction was. And every time after that, the people talked to me about meditation, I said, well, the benefits you're describing, I experience those when I exercise. I feel those when I read fiction. And that's a lot less boring. I still get the reflection. I still get the mindfulness and the centering, you know, without some of the, <laughs> okay, really, do I have to spend time doing nothing? And I think that's something I need to rethink because... Uh, the eight-year-old me did not have the same level of concentration or self-discipline <laughs> that I do now. And I could probably tolerate a meditation session or two. So I, I have opened my mind on this. And you you and Dan Harris and Sam Harris have been probably the three most effective voices on getting me to reconsider that. Okay, you have to let us know when the rethinking gets to the next level of Trying it out, at least. I am completely open to that. And so if you want to hold me accountable for that, I'm ready. I'm writing it down and I will email you. Excellent. Actually, there are two areas that are kind of connected to meditation that you and I are much more in alignment. One is sleep. You believe in it. You think it's a good <laughs> foundational practice. And I, wait a minute, wait a minute. I believe in nothing, but science <laughs> is, is strongly, strongly in favor of the benefits of sleep, and I believe in science. Right, and you are practicing it, right? Like how many hours do you get? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I would say in a typical night, I get seven to eight hours. It's become more of a priority in my life since I got to know you, and I think it's, it's in large part because I think that the data are just so compelling that we don't function well when we're sleep-deprived. And I, I always hear this voice in my head, which is yours, saying, it's, it's like you're drunk. And I've never been drunk. <laughs> I, I care a lot about being in control and being clear-headed and clear-sighted. And I can't imagine jeopardizing that. So it's, yeah, huge priority for me. And also, you have the proof of how much you accomplish when you wake up fully recharged and um, operating on all cylinders. I don't think there are many choices in life that I have more control over than that, that influence my energy and my productivity. And I mean, also, there's just the simple joy factor, right? Even when I can power through exhausted, it's just not fun. And the other thing that we're in agreement on is breathing. We are passionate believers in breathing. The science <laughs> is super clear that breathing is a superpower. And uh, so I'm very glad that you are pro-breather, pro-sleep, and um, open to questioning and rethinking meditation. That's a pretty good place to be in. I, I think we're in, we're in alignment there. I would. I do feel like I have to clarify though that I'm only pro breathing and pro sleep because I have to be right for for my functioning. So <laughs> if if I could outsource my sleep to someone who enjoys sleeping, I would do that in a heartbeat. In fact, that would be the single best thing you could do to improve my life is to say if I could get those extra seven to eight, to eight hours to do things that I'm excited about. I want that time. And I, I know you know people who like sleeping. It's the thing I dislike most in every day because it just feels like such a colossal waste of time. And so there's a part of me that thinks 
I, I really wish I could do what dolphins do, where they can turn off half their brains and they can rest that side and stay awake for 15 days straight. But until the science gets us there, I am pro-sleep. <laughs> uh, do you ever remember your dreams to make it a little less boring and useless? Rarely. I think probably one or two a month. That's it. Because, you know, the, the key here, according to science, is if you begin writing them down, even if it's just a tiny fragment that is one line, you give that message to your subconscious that they matter and you're more likely to remember them. So, you know, I just can't stop myself from preaching. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, no. You didn't. You, you weren't preaching there. You were educating me by introducing some science. And I haven't run that experiment yet. So... I'm going to give this a shot and see what I learned. Great. And then let us know what the data show. <laughs> the one other thing that um, you and I started rethinking at the same time over dinner in London, actually, was online matchmaking. And we decided that we both had a lot of friends who didn't want to go matchmake online. So with the, the help of Alison, your amazing wife, we created this bespoke matchmaking agency. And we had some successes, and we've even had a couple of successes during the pandemic, but no marriages, unless I'm missing something, am I? I might be delinquent on updating you. We have <laughs> one marriage, and now there is at least one child in the world Wow! that came from that. That is amazing. Yeah, we've got some progress. And I know we had at least three couples that we introduced either before or during the pandemic that ended up quarantining together, and at least two of those relationships are still going. One other thing that is um, a big part of your book is the way you've now moved uh, integrity and uh, gratitude and um, generosity kind of above even freedom. So tell us about that process. I don't, I don't remember exactly when this happened, but I was trying to explain how to think again and what I'd learned about the psychology of questioning our assumptions. And I started worrying that people would rethink everything and that they would end up without an anchor or without a sense of self. And I realized that then as, as we saw more and more fake news in the world and conspiracy theories start to pick up, that there were a lot of people who were doing their rethinking in the wrong direction uh, and questioning the truth and starting to believe in falsehoods. And so I guess I realized that we needed some standards, uh, that you, know, you shouldn't be an indiscriminate rethinker. Uh, and the, the standard that I kept coming back to was integrity. Integrity being, I have a set of principles in advance, and I evaluate new information based on those principles, not based on what I already believe. And you know, I've, I've just watched so many events, whether it's in politics or science, where people have a, a really hard time differentiating between following their tribe and pursuing the truth. And I realized that integrity is a big differentiator of that. That if you can come in and say, look, whatever politician you happen to vote for, here are the principles that I'm voting on the basis of. And if that leader ever violates those principles, then I shouldn't follow her or him anymore. And that just, that just elevated the importance of integrity in, in my thinking. So now it's ahead of freedom. I am willing to give up some freedom <laughs> in order to stay true to my principles. Yes. And also related to that is what you've been writing about gratitude, that gratitude has become a big part of our lives more ironically during the pandemic year than before. But what you want us to prioritize is expressing it 
Yes. And not just feeling. Yeah, I think... Tell us about that. This is going to sound a little harsh, but there's something very me-focused about keeping a gratitude journal. As if the whole point of, of, of appreciation is to get happier, right? Or to feel luckier in my life. If you go to your favorite spiritual or philosophical traditions, the original function of gratitude was to bond, to build trust, to change the way that we connect with other people. And I think evolutionary psychologists have argued that we're in some ways wired for gratitude because when we thank people, it motivates them to keep keep supporting us. And that's ultimately good for our survival uh, and our ability to pass on our genes. And so Whatever lens you take on that, I think the expression of it is extremely important. And one of the reasons I've, I've been thinking about this more and more, aside from the fact that I published some research on it, is I think there's a part of me that's always felt guilty receiving. I don't want to be a burden to anyone else. I don't want to feel like a taker. I prefer to be the giver in every relationship. And at some point, what I realized is one of the greatest acts of giving that you can undertake is to make the other givers in your life feel appreciated. And the only way that you can do that is to go out of your way to show gratitude. And for me, that's, that's rarely in the moment. It's rarely when you're, you know, you're receiving a gift or you're struck by somebody's generosity. It's more often months or even years later when the person has forgotten the act or the moment has faded from their memory, but it still sticks with me. And that seems like the most important time to share it. And so the practice I've most enjoyed during the pandemic is, is finding my dormant ties, some of the people I've lost touch with, and letting them know how, you know, eight, nine years ago, they really fundamentally affected my life in a positive way. I love that. And uh, I love the way that you are teaching your children gratitude, the book that uh, you and Alison wrote, The Gift Inside the Box, is such a beautiful book to bring gratitude into children's lives at an early age. And it's been a holiday gift for from me to friends with children. So how did that come about? Oh, thank you. It, it came about in two ways. The first way was after Give and Take came out, I kept getting requests from parents. They wanted to know, how do I raise a child to be kind and giving? And I'm an organizational psychologist, not a developmental psychologist. I don't know. But eventually I got the question enough. And of course, we care about it in our own family that I decided to start reading a lot of the psychology there. And I learned some things that I thought were interesting and ended up writing a little bit about it and didn't know what else to do with it. And then Allison had this observation one day. She's a brilliant writer and she's been writing as long as I've known her, but she'd never shared any of her writing with anyone. And one day she she said, you know, when... When we grew up, uh, if, you know, if we ever received a gift, real effort went into it. And now packages just mysteriously arrive on our porch and show up. And I'm worried that our kids are going to start to develop a little entitlement. You can just press a button and magically a gift arrives. And she said, what if, what if we wrote a story about this from the perspective of a gift who's arriving in a town and every child is saying, mine, 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 that must be for me. And what the gift box is actually looking for is somebody who wants to give that present to someone else. Is that a way to, you know, to teach kids the importance of and the joy of giving? And I just, I thought that was such a creative idea. I love that. And I love that you emphasize joy. And I want to end with this question because it's something I've been thinking a lot about. And you uh, wrote about it in one of your recent newsletters when you said that many people chase wealth, status, achievement, because progress is easy to measure, failing to realize that the gains that count the most, like generosity, like the joy you just described from giving, are the hardest to count. 
So as we live in a world of the quantified self, where more and more of our lives are being tracked and gamified and measured, how can we make sure we measure our progress by these other more important and intangible metrics? I don't know if we can measure it. And you know how much it bothers me as a social scientist <laughs> to admit that. But you know, I, I don't know how to measure if I'm becoming a better person. But I think that ought to be a weekly reflection question for all of us, which is regardless of what I achieved this week, who did I become this week? And did I end up moving closer to my value system? For me, that means asking, did I live by principles of generosity? Did I pursue excellence in, you know, in something that's worthy, that's going to benefit other people, not just me? Did I do that with integrity? Did I stay true to the important commitments that I've made? And have I still maintained some freedom in my life and also not stepped on the freedom of others? I think asking ourselves those questions is a key step. And I guess the other thing I would say is I found it really helpful to broadcast these principles a little bit out into my community, not on social media necessarily, but just letting people who are close to me know these are the values that I hold most dear. And if you ever see me falling short of those, I would love it if you could let me know because I'm not always able to see that myself. Adam, thank you so much. Uh, thank you for this. And thank you for always urging us without preaching or prosecuting uh, to rethink uh, and be more of who we can really be. Thank you. Thank you. This was so fun. And, and thank you again for just engaging so thoughtfully with these ideas and modeling the very rethinking that I'm trying to study. It's, it's always a treat to see it in action. And before we wrap up, I'd like to leave you with a micro step inspired by the conversation that you can take with you. So here is one of my favorites about gratitude, inspired by the way Adam puts his gratitude into action. Once a week, take a moment to express your gratitude to a coworker about something, about anything. Not only will it strengthen your relationships with your coworkers, but as the science shows, expressing gratitude helps us lower our stress and boost our resilience. And if you're working remotely, you can start with a coworker once a week at the end of a Zoom meeting, either one-on-one or shared with a group before everyone signs off. At Thrive, we have time for gratitude at the end of all our team meetings, and it's one of my favorite parts of the day. Even watching others express gratitude puts us in a good mood. It's like collateral gratitude, and the effect is contagious. So like Adam says, put your gratitude into action, and you can start with a coworker just once a week. And with that, I want to express my own gratitude to all of you for joining us today. Join us next time on What I've Learned. We all need help sometimes saying goodbye to the day and allowing ourselves to drift off to sleep. That's why Thrive Global has teamed up with Audible to create the Audible Sleep Collection, a series of guided meditations and stories from Nick Jonas, Sean Diddy Combs, and many others, including Kiki Palmer, who we are about to hear from now. The stories have no beginning, middle, or end, so you won't stay up to hear what happens next. In a bedtime story called The Story of the Ojibwe Dreamcatcher, Kiki shares the Ojibwe story of the Dreamcatcher and how its message of our connection to the natural world 
is still present with us today. Hello. Tonight, I'm going to share with you the story of the Ojibwe Dreamcatcher. But before I begin, take a moment to unwind and get comfortable. Close your eyes and slowly take a few deep breaths. With each exhale, let the trials of the day fade away. Continue inhaling and exhaling until you feel completely relaxed. When an Ojibwe baby is born, a gift that is traditional in many families and communities is a dream catcher. The intricate web within a circle that is placed near where the baby will sleep. Dream catchers have their origin with the Ojibwe, a large tribal group of extended families and clans who live in northern woodlands, a boreal homeland above and below the border between United States and Canada. If you're not asleep yet and want to hear the sleep track in its entirety, go to audible.com slash thrive to start your free trial tonight. <laughs> 